Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're doing our retreat series, which is titled Harmony and Relationships. We're in our fifth class of this eight-part series. And these are classes that I taught this summer in the USA during a retreat. There were other classes as well, but there were these eight unique classes that I hadn't taught anywhere other than the retreat. And I thought it'd be a great idea to offer them here online for those of you guys that weren't able to make the retreat and also to get them recorded so that people who watch our YouTube channel, listen to our podcasts and other ways like this, that you guys could be able to learn the topics that we discussed during our retreat. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly. The way that we do our classes is I'm going to share some teachings with all of you guys related to our topic today, which is titled Developing and Maintaining Relationships, Choosing Wholesome Friends and a Life Partner. And as we go throughout our class today, I will open up for questions at various times and invite you guys to ask questions. When you're asking questions, you can do that through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can just put those into the comment section and our moderators will see that and be sure that your question gets asked. And then if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any question or follow a question that you like. So I'd like to welcome all of you and invite you to learn with us today as we go through sharing this topic of developing and maintaining relationships, choosing wholesome friends and a life partner. So the first thing that I have to share with you and the first several aspects of what I'm going to share with you is all based on relationships that you might decide to develop or maintain with friends and or a life partner. And then towards the end of the class, I'm going to be sharing with you content that is specifically for life partners. And not everybody's going to have a life partner. Some people are going to choose to be single. That's just the way life is, that not every single person in the world is going to have a life partner. Not everyone's going to be single. This is the universal truth of impermanence. But if you're interested in developing and maintaining wholesome relationships with friends and or a life partner, I'm going to be sharing with you guidance to help you be able to accomplish that as part of this path to enlightenment and how you can practice in such a way to ensure that you have wholesome friends and a life partner. Because as you learn the teachings of the Buddha, there's multiple times in his teachings where he talks about cultivating wholesome friends, wholesome companions, and wholesome comrades. He makes this kind of a high priority because in order to progress to enlightenment, you're going to need to have a certain amount of friends and certain amount of people that you interact around you. You're going to be interacting in the world. You're not going to just be 
you know, living for the rest of your life in an isolated, desolated place where there's nobody around. You're going to be interacting with people. And if you have wholesome people around you, this is going to be really helpful for your development. Whereas if you have unwholesomeness where people are diminishing or degrading, uh, denigrating things that you're involved in and what you're doing, then this is going to be a real struggle for you as you progress towards enlightenment. So the people that you have around you and the people that you choose to have around you is directly related to the choices that you make and how you choose to associate with certain people. And a life partner, if you choose to have a life partner, this is a very significant individual in your life. And if you choose a person who's into wholesome things and wholesome activities and conducts themselves in wholesome ways, then this will be very helpful for you and can influence your mind in beneficial ways. Whereas if you chose a life partner who was into unwholesome things or was very negative and degrading and diminishing, this is also going to affect you as well. So the guidance that I have to share with you today is how you can look at the world and choose who you would like to be involved in your life, whether it's friends or a life partner. You could even extend this to potentially coworkers and things like this. But as I teach you today, it's important to understand that everything that I'm sharing, it's not based on judging other people and determining that they're wholesome or unwholesome. Instead, it's about making wise decisions based on wisdom. It's not about pushing people out of your life and declaring that this person isn't worthy of your friendship, for example. Instead, it's about looking at these natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught, specifically the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, and realizing that if you involve yourself in situations where people are into unwholesome things, those are going to affect you. So for example, if I grew up with people who were into various things, and maybe I was even into those things at one time, like using drugs or selling drugs or things like this, and because they were a childhood friend, maybe I've moved out of that and I no longer use drugs or sell drugs, but maybe I'm clinging to those relationships. And now because of my clinging and holding on as we progress in life, maybe we're still friends and we still hang out sometimes. Not that they're a bad person for selling drugs, not that we're looking down on them, but by me choosing to associate with somebody of this nature, it can actually affect me. And as you progress in life, perhaps we're driving down the road, I get pulled over for speeding or running a red light or lights out on my license plate or what have you. And maybe this person slips some cocaine or something like this under my chair. Well, if the police search the car and they find this cocaine, I'm the one who's going to be going to jail not my friend. So this is where the Buddha talks here about the snake who passes through feces. And if this snake passes through feces, that it may not bite you, but it might smear you. And this is how you can get smeared based on certain decisions that you make about friends or a life partner. So it's really important as part of this path that you acquire wisdom. Because in order for you to choose who you're going to associate with in terms of friends or a life partner, you're going to need to acquire wisdom in order to develop your life practice and understand this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect and action and result. If you're 
lacking wisdom about the path to enlightenment and about the natural law of gamma, you're going to struggle in making decisions about who to involve in your life. So one of the primary things that you would like to develop wisdom around is the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, because it's your life, your decisions, and your results. Who you choose to associate with and involve in your life, it matters. And if you use this example that I'm providing, you can see here that if we associate with somebody who's into unwholesome things, it can affect us. Not that this person necessarily is adamantly looking to affect us, but it can affect us as we associate with people who are into unwholesome things. Our mind can be influenced in negative ways versus it can be affected and influenced in positive ways. So if you choose to use something like the five precepts, for example, as maybe like a way for you to discern who to involve in your life and who not to involve in your life. If you're learning the five precepts through the teachings of the Buddha in the words of the Buddha, then you know that these aren't rules, they're not commandments, it's not thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do this. Instead, what the Buddha is teaching as part of the five precepts is he's providing you guidance about the natural law of gamma and by you making decisions in line with the five precepts, you will significantly reduce the unwholesome decisions that you make as an individual, that you're causing less and less harm in the world, so less harm will come back to you. Well, if you understand these five precepts and you're aspiring to practice them more and more closely, if you choose to associate with individuals who are also practicing these, then that will go very well for you because those people's decisions aren't going to be causing harm to you. Now, the rudimentary translations that people describe as the five precepts are no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and no intoxicants. The Buddha actually didn't talk this way. His words around the five precepts are much more illuminating than this. And it's not, no, 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 don't do this, don't do this. And it's not this black and white thing of, you know, like no killing. That sounds like preserve all life at all cost, which the Buddha actually didn't teach. Instead, he taught to be compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. And you can see in the classes and in the books and the videos and other resources that I share around the five precepts, how the Buddha talked about the five precepts. And he gave you much more illuminating language than just no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying and no intoxicants. He provided much more detail. And I provide detail as well in volume one, chapter seven of this book series that I share. So you can see those five precepts there. And of course, it would be important for you on the path to enlightenment to practice those. But then as you're choosing to involve people in your life, you can choose people that are also practicing those. And it doesn't mean that they necessarily learn those five precepts through the Buddhist teachings, because the five precepts are things that we tend to discover and that we tend to learn in a lot of different ways, whether it's Christianity or Muslim teachings or Hindu teachings or other types of teachings, even mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, 
taught us that we shouldn't kill and we shouldn't be aggressive and hostile with our bodily actions and that we shouldn't steal and take things from others and that we shouldn't harm with our sexual conduct and that we shouldn't lie and be untruthful, that we shouldn't have false speech, that we should be a truth speaker, one to be relied on and dependable. And we even learned from grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, not to take substances that cause heedlessness because this pollutes our mind and then we make unwise decisions in the world. So you can actually look to involve people in your life and maybe you're looking at certain things that happen through the eyes of the five precepts and maybe somebody else is practicing those precepts but they might not understand them in the same way as you through the five precepts but they might have learned them in other ways so it doesn't mean that you can only associate with people who are learning and practicing the buddhist teachings but instead you'll have a frame of reference through the things like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, and others of how to kind of discern and make wise decisions about who you would like to involve in your life. Because if there's people who are stealing or lying or things like this in your life, you're going to be impacted by that. You know, they may steal from you, they may lie to you, and then you make decisions about your life and things that are going on. You might be, you know, three months, six months down the road, not realizing that you've based some decisions off of some lies that a friend or a life partner has told. And now you discover those lies and then you've just been making decisions based on things that you thought were the truth. And this is going to be impactful for your life. So it's really wise to be sure that you continue to acquire wisdom in all parts of the path to enlightenment, that you more and more deeply understand the natural law of gamma, that you realize that who you choose to involve in your life really matters, and that even though you might feel that, yes, with the natural law of gamma, that it's your life, your decisions, your results, but your decisions to associate with certain unwholesomeness is going to affect you. That person's decisions themselves are their decisions, but your decision to associate with that is what's affecting you. And this is where the Buddha talks about the snake that passes through feces, that it may not bite you, but it'll smear you with this feces. And the more you understand the five precepts, as you look out at the world and decide who to involve in your life, you can know that the people that you're associating with, that they're not actively, intentionally killing other beings, that they're not taking things and expecting things to be given to them all the time, that they're not having sexual misconduct and making decisions in that way that's going to harm people, that they're being truthful, they're not being deceptive or lying or having false speech, that they're trustworthy and dependable, and that you associate with people who aren't taking substances that cause heedlessness, because as they're doing those things, they're going to be impacted by that themselves, and then it's going to impact you as well. Some other things to think about as it relates to developing relationships with friends or what we might say wholesome friends is a wholesome friend is one who's a wise friend. You're looking for someone who is wise and that they have certain wisdom, maybe about the teachings of the Buddha, but also other parts of life and that you see them making wise decisions. You should look for the same mental qualities that you're looking to cultivate in your life through understanding life through the teachings of the Buddha, 
you can observe those same qualities in other people. So if you know you're cultivating loving kindness and compassion, for example, then those are qualities that you might be interested to observe in friends or a life partner. Or if you know about sympathetic joy and equanimity, you know, the sympathetic joy is having joy for others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it. The opposite of that is jealousy. So if you see somebody who's regularly jealous, then this can be an indication to you that they're having challenges in that area. And then same thing with equanimity. Equanimity is having calmness and composure, especially in difficult situations. And there's no friend that you're probably going to be able to interact with that's going to be doing these things perfectly, right? You're not looking for perfection, but you're looking for someone who's aspiring to do these things and who's looking to cultivate wisdom. So things like right speech, for example, you understand if you've been studying with me for any period of time, the five factors of well-spoken speech that if we speak at the right time, what we say is true, we speak gentle, we speak beneficially with a mind of loving kindness, this is going to promote and cultivate healthy relationships in our life. Well, you probably aren't able to do that perfectly right now, and other people aren't probably able to do that perfectly in your life, especially if they haven't been studying these teachings. So if somebody has wrong speech, for example, and they happen to maybe be aggressive or harsh with you, see how they handle that. You know, do they realize that they're being harsh? Do they realize they're not being gentle? Do they realize that they're not practicing love and kindness? And when they're harsh and aggressive, do they stop themselves? Do they apologize? Do they realize that they've done this? Or do they blame you? And if they're blaming you, then perhaps they're not understanding something like the Four Noble Truths. They're not understanding non-clinging and non-attachment. They're not understanding non-craving and non-desire. They may be practicing wrong view where they think that they're justified in their harsh speech towards you. And if somebody feels that way, that they are justified in their harsh speech to you, then that means it's going to be coming more and more frequently that they're going to continue to speak this way to you, not realizing that they've made a mistake. Because if somebody makes an honest mistake, and you know, of course, people are going to make mistakes with their speech until somebody is either close to enlightened or enlightened, they're going to still have difficulties with speech, for example. And if somebody speaks harsh or aggressive or they're disgruntled or negative, if they recognize that and they apologize for that and they realize that they need to work on that for themselves, well, hey, this is somebody who's wise. They're making decisions and they're understanding that they've made a mistake here. They're accepting responsibility for it. And now they're aiming to do better. This is outstanding, right? They're willing to do the work and they're looking in the right place, which is in their own mind. Whereas if they're blaming you, this means that they're not understanding that any kind of aggression or hostility or even the slightest little disgruntledness is coming from their own mind. And if they continue to blame you for it or other people around them, then they're not going to be able to solve this problem. So you'll need to make decisions as you walk forward on the path to enlightenment of certain relationships that you're going to choose to continue to be involved in, even though you might know that there's some challenges in the relationship and you're willing to work on that and improve it and they're willing to work on that and improve it too. But both people understand that they need to work on their own minds. It's not trying to control the other person to do something you want, but instead it's looking at your own practice and figuring out what it is that you need to do to improve. So if you're willing to do that work and you can look at that and realize 
that there are going to be people you're currently in relationships with now that you are going to continue to work through those challenges and through those struggles and they're willing to do the work on themselves and you're willing to do the work on yourself as well. But then there's going to be other relationships in your life and as you progress on this path to enlightenment that you might just realize that there's too much difficulties there. There's too much struggle. There's too much hostility. There's too much aggression. Maybe they're not willing to do the work. They don't even maybe see that they are causing their own difficulties. They're continuing to blame you. Maybe your mind is having some difficulties as well in the relationship and you might just choose to move on and not participate in that relationship. And I'll help you to understand how to do that. But let's talk about understanding non-clinging and non-attachment because if you're learning on this path and you're understanding non-clinging and non-attachment, you understand that it's your own mental longing and strong eagerness that's causing your discontent feelings, that you're causing the anger and the sadness and frustration and other discontent feelings yourself through your own craving, desire, attachments. And you might be working on this to try to resolve that more and more. But if you cultivate relationships with friends or a life partner who firmly believe that you are the cause of their anger or you are the cause of their hostility or their frustration or their annoyance, then this is going to be a real struggle in the relationship because they're going to be constantly blaming you for things that are going on in their mind. And where you can help them to understand, you can do that. But if they're unwilling to understand, that may be one of the relationships that you choose to work on and it's going to just take you more time. You're going to need some patience or it may be a relationship that you choose to move on from. Only you can make those decisions about what would be best in those particular situations based on the relationship and the history of the relationship. But as long as this other person is not understanding what clinging and attachment is, they might actually be trying to cling to you and holding on to you and thinking that that's going to bring them some kind of lasting satisfaction. So when you get really good at understanding your own cravings, desires, attachments, your own clinging, when you're working on identifying those and eliminating those from the mind in your life practice, then you can actually get really good at observing when other people are clinging to you or attached to you through things that they do, things that they say. And you would like to get to the point where when you observe that about other people clinging to you, that you're able to skillfully do things to help eliminate that. Let me give you an example. If you have a friend who's constantly texting you or if your life partner is constantly texting you or calling you or having constant contact like this or expecting that when they do text you that you reply within five minutes or 10 minutes. And if you don't reply, they get angry or frustrated or they worry about you if you're okay. This is an indication of clinging because they have a certain expectation. That's what craving is or desire. It's this want, this expectation, this longing, this yearning, wanting things to be a certain way. And if their expectation is that you have to reply to them within five or 10 minutes, or they're going to get angry, that's not going to be possible for you to reply to them in five or 10 minutes all the time. And you're not interested in cultivating relationships where people maintain that expectation that you should reply to them in five or 10 minutes, because now you're attached to your mobile device 
and you have to constantly check it. And if you don't reply back to this person, they get angry or frustrated or they get worried or think something's wrong. So where you see that somebody's having this challenge, again, they're not a bad person. They just maybe are not understanding their own craving, their own clinging. What you can do in order to help this person without even necessarily talking to them or telling them anything is you can just slowly, gradually put more and more space between the times that you reply back to them. So if you know that they expect you to reply back in five or 10 minutes, start going to 20 or 30 minutes or an hour. And then when you're doing that for a while and their mind adjusts, they're going to get angry a few times. They may even blame you for their anger. That might be an opportunity for you to talk to them a little bit, help them see that they're causing it themselves. But then start expanding it longer, you know, every two or three hours or then get to once a day or once every two or three days. Get to the point where this person has let go of the expectation that you should be replying to them right away or that when they call, you should answer right away. You know, if somebody's calling you two, three, four, five times repeatedly trying to get you to pick up the phone, that's an indication that someone's craving or clinging. Choose not to pick up the phone. Just let it keep ringing. Let it keep ringing. And then when they finally stop after calling you three, four, five, 10, 20 times, then maybe after three, four, five hours, then you decide to call them see if how they respond to you see if they react with hostility and aggression are they blaming you but you would like to spread this out farther and farther and farther because otherwise you're going to cultivate a lot of people around you that are constantly expecting you to reply to them or answer their phone call on a first ring or you know immediately so these electronic devices that we have, it's great to be able to stay in contact with each other. But when people have craving and clinging to reach out and contact you, and they're putting that expectation on you, now it's like a noose around the neck. It's like a ball and chain around your ankle where you're constantly having to attend to this electronic device. And this person is going to get angry or frustrated or irritated if you don't do that. So look for situations like this, not just with text messaging and phone calls, but other situations where people are just clinging and clinging to you and look for ways to put some more and more distance from that individual in you. And then maybe you do that for a period of time. And then when their mind kind of lets go of these things, then you're able to start associating with them more at ease. And then you'll find that your life can be more peaceful and more joyful because you don't have 10, 20, 30 people that are constantly expecting you to answer their call and answer their text messages right away, because that's going to be a real burden for you to carry around. There's some more that I need to share with you guys, but I thought just to get us started and allow you guys to ask some questions, I'll just pause here and see what questions you guys might have. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Thank you, teacher David. Uh, it reminded me of an ex-co-worker uh, that I have. Uh, he tends to get drunk and then start texting, like a text after a text. And there is no uh, questions. He doesn't really uh, want me to answer. He's just sending te texts. So at, at the beginning, I would try to respond once in a while and uh, talk to him. but. Um, there is it doesn't get anywhere mm -hmm. so i was wondering uh, now i disable notification 
you know, that a message came. But I'm not sure if that's the best way to, to handle that. Like, I don't know. It's just when he gets drunk that he does that. And there is no way to, to really talk to him uh, at that time because his mind is not clear. And if he's not drunk, he never reaches out. So I was wondering what would be the, the wisest way to handle that situation. That seems like a wise decision to me that if you've seen the repeated pattern of this person, you know, just contacting you during times when they're intoxicated and there's really no point or no purpose behind it, then sure, you can turn off the notifications, put that on mute, ignore it. Um, I even had something like this today. There was a person who popped up in my message, you know, messenger said, hello, how are you? And I wrote back and said, I'm wonderful. They said, you know, how's your day going? You know, outstanding. And then right away they started trying to teach me some things and I just ignored it, right? Um, I just completely didn't respond back to them. And this is a way to just extinguish that. Whereas if you engage and you start interacting with this person, now it becomes a habit and their mind can get attached to contacting you. So there's no harm in ignoring a message from somebody. You know, there's situations where, you know, people contact me sometimes and they just want to make statements and they just want to tell me things. Of course, if it's a student who's learning and they're telling me about what's going on in their their life and they're asking for help, they're asking questions and they're seeking guidance and help and I'm going to be helpful for those folks. But when people are just making blanket statements and trying to just send you erroneous stuff, this can be based in their own craving. And sometimes the most loving and kind thing that you can do is ignore it. You know, there's people who that I've had to mute or ignore that just send a picture every day or a thumbs up, you know, every two, three, four days or something like this. And this is just their craving that they're just wanting some kind of contact. And if you continue to read their messages or if you reply to them, this just allows their craving to continue. So what you're doing is completely fine. You're not judging this person. You're not looking down on them. That You're not thinking they're a bad person. You're just choosing to ignore. And this is their karma based on them talking in a way that's unbeneficial and being intoxicated to have people ignore their messages. This is the results of their decisions of being intoxicated. Because if this person was having a conversation that was beneficial, then people would be interested in talking with them and having a relationship with them. Thank you, teacher David. Also, Basam is asking, how can uh, for parents to not allow their children to cling to them, teacher? Yeah, this is a class that I taught just recently about how to eliminate attachment to those who are closest to us. So in the case of a child, you know, there's multiple things that you need to do and children are normally going to cling to their parents. And this is part of what happens and the parents are oftentimes attached to their child. So learning how to allow your child to do things without you, like going to other people's houses or spending time with an aunt or an uncle or grandma or grandpa and being away from mom and dad for a period of time, going out and playing outside with other people, being in the same home together and being in different rooms and not needing to be beside each other all the time. These are the kind of things that you can do in order to help a child and help your own mind as a parent to let go of needing to be with your child all the time. So sleepovers at grandma's house, grandpa's house, 
aunts, uncles, friends' houses, this can be really helpful. And then when there is that sleepover and they're gone for a day or two or three or what have you, mom and dad shouldn't be calling and saying, how are you doing? Are you okay? You know, what are you doing? You know, is everything okay over there? Because this is the mind craving. There needs to be the ability to, you know, you go enjoy your time somewhere else and we're going to go over here and enjoy our time. And this is impermanent. And oftentimes with a child, you need to gradually build up to this where they're comfortable with having that separation. But that would be a really good way to help a child to let go and not hold on to mom and dad so tightly. Thank you, teacher David. Doesn't appear that we have any other question at this time. Okay. So let's talk about love without attachment. This is a class that I also teach as part of the group learning program. And it's in this first book, volume one, developing a life practice, the path that leads to enlightenment. This is chapter 15 in that book. And a person who's on the path to enlightenment is going to need to learn how to love without attachment. Because in the unenlightened state, we misunderstand what love is. This craving, desire, attachment, where the mind is longing and yearning for things to be a certain way, oftentimes that's polluting true love. This longing and yearning, this craving, desire, attachment is masquerading as love. What craving desire attachment is, is where the mind has certain conditions or certain expectations and it wants things to be a certain way. And when things aren't that way, then the mind is uncomfortable and it needs things to be a certain way. And it thinks that if it can just convince this person to be a certain way, that then the mind can be content or it can be fulfilled. But ultimately, the mind just comes up with this longer and longer list of conditions of these conditions need to be met. And when these conditions are met, we oftentimes in relationships say, okay, I've fallen in love with you, or I am now in love with you. And now what we say is, I love you, therefore I want you to be with me because you make me happy. This actually isn't love. There may be love in there, but really what it is is it's craving desire attachment because what the unenlightened mind is doing is it's falsely thinking that this craving desire attachment is the love. And when this person meets our conditions that we've set out, then we say, okay, I love you. But then as the relationship goes, then this list of conditions gets longer and longer and longer. And it becomes literally impossible for this person to fulfill all these conditions. So we've essentially sabotaged the relationship. And now we get to a certain point in the relationship where we say, I've fallen out of love with you. I don't love you anymore. Essentially what's happened here is when you meet my conditions and you do the things that I want, I will love you and I will say I love you. But when you stop doing the things that I want you to do, I don't love you anymore. This actually isn't love. This is craving, desire, attachment. It's selfishness. It's the mind saying, I love you, therefore I want you to be with me because you make me happy. It's all about me in this craving, desire, attachment. The selfish desires take over the relationship and sabotage it. But what true love is, or unconditional love, is I love you, therefore I would like to see you be well. That I don't have any conditions that you have to meet in order for me to love you. I just love you because I love you. And because there's no conditions that you have to meet in order for me to love you, there's nothing that you can do for me to stop loving you. 
So over here with craving, desire, attachment, masquerading as love, we say that we fall in love and we fall out of love. But in reality, what we're doing is we're falling into craving and we're falling out of craving. Over here with true love, love without attachment, that's unconditional love, you can love every being without even meeting them, without even knowing them. You can just be interested in seeing others be well and interested in seeing others be peaceful. You're not responsible for them to be peaceful. You're not responsible for them to be well. Each individual being is responsible for ensuring that they are well and that they are peaceful. But when you have this love for somebody, then you can just love all beings and you can have this genuine interest in seeing them be well. And you can have this unconditional love where they didn't have to earn your love. So therefore you don't fall out of love with them. So in this type of scenario where you understand what true love is and you gain more and more insight into that by reading chapter 15 in volume one, by working with a teacher, by learning in the classes that I've taught that, and then you start implementing it into your life more and more, then you can start practicing true love in your relationships and you can get accustomed to what that's like. And you can experience that in your relationships. You may not have actually have had a relationship at this point where you're practicing true love and the other person's practicing true love. Because if you're not understanding what true love is, that means there's going to be discontentedness in the relationship. There's going to be disgruntledness. There's going to be irritation. There's going to be annoyance. There's going to be arguments. There's going to be anger. And it's not that either person is a bad person. It's just that the mind is untrained. It doesn't understand a lot of aspects of the path to enlightenment and it doesn't understand how to practice true love without attachment. But the more that you understand true love and you can practice this in all your relationships, now your relationships become very peaceful because you don't want anything from this person. Because as long as you want something from this person, there's going to be times where they can't give that to you because of the universal truth of impermanence. They can't give you what you want permanently. So the problem isn't that they aren't giving you what you want. The problem is, is that you want something. And then what happens is when we have these conditions of things that we want and they're not being done the way we want, we tend to try to control the other person and try to convince them to do things our way. This is the mind struggling in the relationship. And now it starts sabotaging the relationship through trying to force this person or convince this person to do things your way. And this crushes the relationship because there's more and more discontentedness that comes about because they're not doing things the way you want. And then the more that we try to force or control that person, they feel uncomfortable because they're being forced or controlled to do things a certain way. So you need to break away from this and learn how to love people as they are. That's what true love is, is loving people as they are. If you're a parent or if you have had unconditional love for your parents, then you might have an understanding of what unconditional love is. But oftentimes unconditional love gets tainted with craving, desire, attachment. So you might love your parents or you might love your children regardless of what they do. 
but yet there's this craving that's polluting or tainting this true love where the mind now in certain situations wants this child to be a certain way or wants your parents to be a certain way or wants your life partner to be a certain way. So as long as you have that true love in there, that unconditional love where you can love this person as they are and have a genuine interest in seeing them be well, but yet you have this craving that's polluting it, now it's going to create struggles in the relationship. So you would like to get to a point where you understand what true love is through acquiring the wisdom of what that is and how to practice it. And then more and more that you're able to cultivate relationships such that the people around you start to understand this. And the way that they will understand it is by you practicing it. And this is one of the reasons why most people in the world aren't practicing true love because they're not in relationships or they haven't had relationships where there are true love that's happening. There might be unconditional love there, but it's being tainted with this craving. So the more that you get in touch with what true love is, love without attachment, and you practice it, then more and more you'll be able to help the people around you to learn how to practice this as well. If anything, just through the way you conduct yourself, people will experience your true love and start getting more and more in touch with what that is. Therefore, you won't fall in love with people and you won't fall out of love with people. You'll just love people as they are unconditionally. And then as part of that, you'll need to learn how to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings and ensure that your relationships are having politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect. Because if there's a relationship that doesn't have these baseline foundational needs, then the relationship's going to struggle to be healthy. There's these baseline needs that any relationship needs. The politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect needs to be there in order to build this healthy relationship. Where if you or another person were impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful repeatedly on an ongoing basis, this is going to create struggles in your life. And as long as these struggles are happening and transpiring, then you guys are going to struggle in your relationship because you don't have the baseline foundations of politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect. The Buddha also talks in parts of his teachings where he talks about the way to develop a sustaining relationship is to ensure that you're practicing giving or generosity, that you have enduring speech, which is like inspiring and lovely speech, where essentially you're practicing the right speech from the Eightfold Path, that you have beneficent conduct or moral conduct from the Eightfold Path, like right speech, right action, and right livelihood, that you're not causing harm through your conduct, and that there's equality in the relationships, that you look at people as being equal, that if you put yourself above others and you talk down to people, this isn't going to promote healthy relationships. Or if you put yourself below people and you look up to people in ways that your mind is uncalm and shaken up, then this is going to be challenging for you to have relationships like that. So when you learn this wisdom about how to have healthy relationships and you know what it takes for you to have healthy relationships with others, then you can also look for these same things when you are cultivating relationships with others. 
whether it's friends or a life partner or coworkers or what have you, look for people who understand true love or are interested in understanding true love, people who are polite, kind, friendly, respectful. If you are practicing and they're practicing generosity, endearing speech, beneficent conduct, and equality, this is going to be very helpful in your relationships. And then you would like to eliminate confrontation in your relationships. Understanding that when you're in relationships, there's going to be disagreements. Disagreement doesn't mean there's something wrong. Oftentimes when we're in relationships, particularly with a life partner, but also with friends as well, we think if our friend disagrees with us or if our life partner disagrees with us, somebody might interpret that as disrespect. And now if the mind's craving permanence, wanting everybody to agree with you, now your mind might crave and crave and crave for this agreement. And then when somebody disagrees with you, now the anger, the frustration or the irritation, the hostility, the bitterness, the aggression, starts to arise and then our conduct becomes unskillful and now we start being harsh and aggressive towards people through our intention speech and actions but if you understand that disagreement is completely normal this is the universal truth of impermanence that it's not possible for everybody to agree with you and if you're basing your decisions of who to be friends with or who to be a life partner with based on people who disagree with you then that means you're only going to be able to associate with people who agree with you a hundred percent on everything and there's really not many people if any at all that are ever going to agree with you on everything there's going to be people who disagree with you about things in life. So disagreement isn't a problem. Disagreement is actually normal. It's the universal truth of impermanence. But the problem is, is if the mind's craving permanence, either you or the other person, now when there is disagreement, now there's almost like a fight to death in order to get that other person to agree. Because the unenlightened mind thinks that if I can just get this person to agree with me, everything will be fine. But if you understand that disagreement is normal, it's described as part of the universal truth of impermanence that there is going to be disagreement. Then when it happens, your mind can remain polite, kind, friendly, and respectful in the relationship. In fact, when people disagree with me, I ask questions and I try to understand what is their opinion and what is their view. Because every individual is different. We've all had different experiences. We've grown up in different places. We've grown up in different families. We've had different education. We've had different experiences in terms of our occupation. So our opinions and our views about things are informed based on the unique experiences that we've had in life. So two individuals coming together, either as friends or a life partner, they've had completely different experiences in life. So it makes complete sense that they're gonna have different opinions and different views beyond just the universal truth of impermanence and understanding that, yeah, it's not possible for everybody to have the same opinions and views. But if you understand that everybody's had different experiences in life, then you understand that it's impossible for people to agree with you. That's not the problem. The disagreement isn't the problem. The problem is, is when the mind craves permanence, then when there is a disagreement, then the mind becomes hostile and aggressive, wanting this person to agree, and then there's almost this fight to death. So you can eliminate confrontation 
by understanding that when there's disagreement, that maybe it becomes a conversation and you talk about it. But if you observe that there's anger and frustration arising in the mind, maybe it's not the best idea to talk about this disagreement. But you can actually disagree with people respectfully and politely and then still be friends and still be a life partner. You don't need to force agreement through hostility and aggression, through fear, through argument. And where somebody is looking to do that with you, it's better to just not engage in that type of discussion because if their mind is craving permanence, the only way for them to calm down is for somebody to agree with them. And if you're interested in only speaking the truth and agreeing with them would be meaning that you're not speaking the truth. You're not going to be willing to say, I agree with you. And they're not going to be willing to give up this fight until somebody agrees with them. So it's better to just not engage in that conversation. And perhaps you might decide to look at whether it makes sense for you to be friends or like partner with this person as somebody's mind is craving for everyone to agree with them. And in situations where you decide that you would no longer like to be friends with somebody or you would like to move on, it's better to just move on. Oftentimes what we're taught is that we need to go to this person and we need to give them a list of reasons why we can't be their friends anymore and we need to sever the relationship and be done with it. You know, in certain situations, if there's like a legal marriage or something like this, there needs to be a formal close to the relationship. But the vast majority of relationships that we have, they don't need that. But oftentimes we feel that if we go to this person and we're the first one to go to them and we tell them all the reasons why we can't be their friend anymore, it's kind of our way of walking out of the relationship with some kind of dignity, like we were right and they were wrong. And therefore we can walk away from this relationship with our head held up high because we know that we're better than this person. But this is just the conceit. This is the ego at work trying to convince you to do these things. Instead, if you're choosing to no longer be a friend with somebody or you're choosing to move on from a relationship, you can just gradually move on. You can just choose to not answer the phone or answer it every third time and just kind of gradually move away from this where maybe they send you a text message, you reply every third day, every sixth day, once a week or something like this, and you just gradually allow their mind to move on and you gradually allow your mind to move on. And by doing that and not having that confrontation where you're saying, I can't be your friend because of all of these reasons, then as you guys go away from each other and maybe you're doing work on your own life practice, and maybe at some point they choose to do some work on their life practice, say three to five years from now, you guys cross paths again. You can be like, hey, Barbara, hey, John, hey, Bob, how are you doing? Haven't seen you in a while. You know, you can have a conversation with this person, see where they're at in life. And maybe perhaps, you know, they've done some work, you've done some work, maybe you guys are in some better places mentally. Maybe there's a a friendship that's still there, perhaps, and you guys might decide to, you know, talk again. But if you sever this relationship in a harsh and aggressive way and you bring this abrupt impermanence to the relationship, now the minds are going to struggle with this. And then if you guys end up crossing paths at some point in the future, it's going to be very awkward. It's going to be very challenging to say, hey, Bob, how are you doing? Hey, Susie, how are you doing? Because there's been this real aggression or this confrontation of these are all the reasons why I can't be your friend. This is judging the person. This is saying these are all the things wrong with you and this is why I can't be your friend anymore. 
This is judgment. You're not interested in judging others. If you realize that maybe somebody's speaking harsh or aggressive or hostile and they're impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, and you've decided like, hey, it wouldn't be wise for me to continue to be around this, rather than judge them and look down on them and tell them all those reasons why you're choosing to not be in a relationship, you can just have loving kindness, which is a genuine interest in seeing this being be well. You can have compassion, which is concern for their misfortune, and just choose to gradually drift away. And that allows them to move on and allows you to move on without this big confrontation and this hostility and this judgment of looking down on somebody of why you can no longer be their friend. Some other things to think about as you're looking to develop and maintain relationships is when things are happening in your relationships, don't assume that you know the full story. It's very rare that you're going to know the full story. If you've been around children or even adults, then you know that when certain things happen, particularly outside of your presence, you're not going to necessarily know the full story. Or if somebody is struggling with something, you don't necessarily know the full story. So you're going to need to ask questions rather than assuming that you know the full story and you know what's going on with this other person. You're going to need to ask questions and seek understanding before making any decisions. Because if you assume things, then you're going to be making decisions on something that maybe is not true. We talk about this word assume in common language. In the Buddhist teachings, this is called perceptions. What a perception is, is the way things seem to be. And it may be true and may be false, but it's the way things seem to be. It can oftentimes be an untruth. And if you're clinging or you're holding on, you're clinging to your perceptions of the way things seem to be, you might start making a bunch of decisions in your relationships based on the way things seem to be, your perceptions, your assumptions. And now when you're making decisions based on your perceptions or your assumptions, you can oftentimes be very wrong about what you're choosing to make decisions about. So it's better to ask questions and be sure that you fully understand the situation before you start making decisions. And then understand that being a problem solver is very helpful as you progress forward in life. A enlightened being is going to be a very good problem solver. Because they're asking questions, because they're basing their decisions on the truth, they're not going to make decisions based on false truths. They're not going to cling to their perceptions or the way that things seem to be. Instead, they're going to be asking questions to try to understand the situation. And then when they understand it, an enlightened being will be able to make decisions and solve the problem. In fact, enlightened beings don't even look at situations that are occurring as a problem. It's just a challenge. Whatever is occurring in life, it's just some impermanence. So if you receive something in the mail that you feel is untrue, like maybe a ticket from the police, or maybe you get a bill that's inaccurate, maybe someone's overcharging you for some service, rather than look at that as a problem, just look at it as impermanence. Okay, either this company has made a mistake somewhere and they're overbilling me, or there's something that they're billing me for that I don't realize that I spent money on, 
let me get some more information here. Let me investigate this. Let me not cling to my perception that I'm being overbilled. Instead, let me call them up. Let me politely, kindly, friendly, and respectfully ask questions and try to understand what it is that they're billing me for because there's something that I'm not understanding or there's something that the company is not understanding. And let's work this out. So there's some kind of challenge that's being presented. It's some type of impermanence somewhere. There's some wisdom that is unknown. So let's ask questions and try to discover the truth. And then we can make decisions that bring this to a conclusion. So ensure that you're understanding that you're going to face challenges in the world. You're not always going to know all the information and you're going to need to offer solutions to be able to bring something to a conclusion that everybody can be comfortable with. And this is going to require you to take your time so that you're not in a hurry. That if you're hurrying through life, maybe you're hurrying up to try to get friends or you're hurrying up to get a life partner. Maybe society has convinced you that every 30-year-old person needs to have children by now or every 30 or 40 or 50-year-old person who doesn't have a life partner, maybe society has somehow convinced you that this person is a loser or nobody wants to be around you. But that's not true. Not every person is going to have children. Not every person is going to have a life partner. This is impermanence. It's not possible for everybody to do these things. And if society is setting the expectation that everybody has to have children and everybody has to be in a life partner relationship. This is their mind craving permanence. And if you adopt that expectation and that craving and you're in a hurry to hurry up and find friends or a life partner, or you put your value as a person based on how many friends that you have, then you might find that you're in a hurry to hurry up and acquire a friend or a life partner thinking that this is going to somehow satisfy your mind, but it's not going to satisfy the mind because it's just a craving. So you're going to need to ensure that you're not rushing in the decisions that you're making about whether you need to acquire a friend or whether you need to have a life partner, but all aspects of your life. You shouldn't feel that you need to hurry up and make a bunch of decisions because when you feel the mind is hurrying, this is because of craving desire attachment. The mind knows at a certain level that if it gets to the end of this thing, if it gets its craving, that there's pleasant feelings waiting for it at the end. So oftentimes what the mind tries to do is it tries to hurry up and make a whole bunch of rapid decisions in order to get to the end and actually get that thing, get the reward because it wants those happy, excited feelings, those conditioned pleasant feelings. So if you saw a commercial about a new electronic device or a new pair of shoes or something like this, your mind might have developed this craving that I've got to have those shoes or I got to have that new electronic device. And now you search on the internet, you look to see what it's about, you do all this research, you find out what the prices are, you find out where that product's being sold, you check their inventory, you might hurry up and go to the store, you might call the store and see if they've got it. There might be all these rapid decisions of go, 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 where the mind just believes that if it gets the objects of its affection, there's going to be some kind of lasting satisfaction there. But what you would like to do is restrain the mind and pull the mind back and realize that you need to take your time, that you need to look at your wants versus your needs. This is what's going to slow the mind down. You might want a life partner, 
But are you really at a point in your life where you're able to do that in that you feel that you've done the work and you have the wisdom in your own mind to be able to make a wise choice about a life partner? Or you may choose that you're interested in meeting new people. Maybe you've moved to a new town and you'd like to meet some new friends, but is now the time that you need to do that? Or is your mind just rushing and racing after this? So be sure you take your time because the mind's craving is going to want to push and push and push and hurry this up. So you're going to need to take your time in choosing to develop friends and a life partner. Look at how your friends or any potential life partner treats other people because how people treat others is ultimately the way they're going to treat you someday. So if you see how they interact with food servers or taxi drivers, see what their relationship is with their mom and their dad or their siblings or other people around them. If a person is constantly talking about how bad their previous friends are or how bad their other life partner was, it's only a matter of time before you're an ex-friend or an ex-life partner and they're going to probably be doing the same thing to you. Because if people are constantly complaining about their friends or their life partner, they don't realize that they're actually creating these problems in their own mind. And when they're not around you, they're probably going to be complaining about you too. So look at how they treat people. Look at how they interact with people. Look at about how they talk about other people. And if people are generally positive and uplifting and thinking about things in that way, then this is somebody who looks at you in the same way. But if they're negative and degrading and diminishing towards other people and they treat other people that way, they're eventually going to be treating you that way or talking about you in that negative way as well. Understand that your role in your relationships and your role in life is not to please other people through your relationship choices. Sometimes we think that we need to pick a life partner that mom, dad, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, and everybody just adores. And that's what the perfect partner is, is that if my family accepts them. Well, the people who your family maybe are interested in seeing you be with or they want to have you choose as a life partner may be very different than who you might choose. So if you're making a choice about who to involve in your life as friends or a life partner based on the expectations of others, maybe those other people are happy for a period of time because you've met their expectations. But are you really content and joyful with the choice that you've made? So if you go through life trying to please others through your relationship choices, either as friends or life partners, then you might find that you are making your choices based on expectations of others and you find that the choices that you made weren't necessarily the best. So don't feel like you have to please others through your choices. It's your relationships. Mom, dad, they have their relationship. Aunts, uncles, they have their relationships. Siblings, they have their relationships. They shouldn't have any say in the choices that you make about who you're choosing to involve in your life. It's your life, your decisions, and your results. You're the one who's going to spend perhaps the rest of your life with this individual. You're the one who's cultivating certain friends and people around you. You're the one that's going to need to live with the decisions that you make. You shouldn't allow other people to influence your decisions. Make the decisions that you feel are best. And then as you're making decisions about who to involve in your life, leave space for growth. As you choose a life partner or as you choose friends, 
these people aren't going to stay exactly the same. If you're in a relationship for a long-term period, people are going to change. This is the universal truth of impermanence. My wife and I, we've been together for 15 years now, and things have drastically changed from when we first met. When we first met, you know, she wasn't working too much. I was working quite a bit. I was a business person. I was making all kinds of money. I was going away to work and I would come home and I would have five entrees waiting on the table when I would get home from work. So much food that I couldn't even have a plate on the table. There wasn't even space for me to put a plate to actually eat off of. There were so many dishes on the table. And this went on for a really long period of time as we were living together and getting to know each other and dating and so forth. And, you know, she would wash my laundry and she would take care of things because I was busy working and she was only working a few days a week at that point. But then as things changed and things evolved, you know, we started having a child. We had a child and, you know, we started changing our occupation. We changed where we lived. These same things couldn't occur anymore. So David had to wash laundry on his own and David has to find food for himself and these kind of things. I don't make an enormous amount of money anymore. I just live very basic life on donations and You know, if either one of us, either my wife or I, based the conditions of our relationship based on what was happening when we first got together, now that things have changed, somebody might say, oh, the love is gone or I don't love you anymore. If my expectation was that she needed to be cooking for me for my entire life or she was going to do my laundry my entire life, well, that doesn't allow for growth and change. As we had a child, she needed to start taking care of him and I needed to take care of him too. So we had less time to spend with each other. But during the early phases of our relationship, we spent a lot of time with each other. So we understood and we have a common understanding of what we're doing in life. But then as I started shifting and changing and then I started deciding to share these teachings of the Buddha, if she was determined to have this constant money coming in, she would have tried to control me and force me and have me not do those things. I would not have the freedom to be able to do the things that I'm interested in doing. But by each of us not being attached to her being attached to the money that I was making or me being attached to certain tasks that she was performing in the house, then as things change and evolve, we can allow each other to grow and just make our own choices about what it is that we would like to do in life. So whatever relationships you have, whether they're friends or whether they're a life partner, these relationships are going to change, not only in terms of the things that we provide in the relationships or the things that we do, but our appearance is going to change, right? When my wife and I first met 15 years ago, we were a lot younger and we looked a lot different back then. And now as we've aged, we look very different than we did 15 years ago. Whereas if our mind was craving this permanence and wanting this youthful appearance or wanting certain things out of the other person in terms of how they look and what type of clothes they wear and things like this, then as we evolve and we start changing, Somebody's mind is going to be discontent if there's this craving for permanence and this craving for things to never change. So understand that your relationships will change. That's definitely going to happen. And all you can do is leave space for that change. As you change and as they change, just be interested in seeing that person be well. Support them, encourage them. As they make decisions to do other things in life, just make space for that to occur. And know that that's part of 
being a really wonderful partner. And that's part of being a really wonderful friend is that you're not trying to control this person because you want certain things out of them. But instead, you just observe that, yes, they're changing. They're making different decisions. And that's okay. And you can love them as they are, whatever choices and decisions they make. You might not agree with all their choices and decisions, but you can support and encourage them that they're on their own path, they're on their own life, they're in their own journey, and they're going to make their own decisions. So let me pause here. I have some more things to share with you specifically about life partners. So far, I've been talking about friends and life partners. The next part that I'm going to talk about is specifically about life partners. But let me give you guys a chance to ask questions here. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Thank you, Teacher David. Rick has his hand raised. Let's go to him. Yes, thank you. Hi, Teacher David. Um, I have two questions, one from Max and one from myself. Max asks, what did the Buddha teach about trust in relationships? So trust is something that you need to have towards all beings. He didn't talk about it just in relationship to relationships. He encouraged people to have trust in general because if someone lacks trust, then that means there's something that the mind is holding on to, that the mind is judging another person and now I can't trust you, right? Because I see something in you that I don't like and I can't trust you. Now, there's also discernment with this, right? Now, like if I had a child and I had a caregiver that's showing up and I could tell that they are intoxicated, like maybe this person's supposed to watch my children for the night while my wife and I go out and go do something. Well, if this person shows up with intoxication, it's not that I don't trust this person, it's just that they're not in a condition to care for a child while they're intoxicated. So in that situation, we're going to make a wise decision to not have that person take care of our child in that situation. Now, if this person showed up and they had a certain hairstyle that I didn't like or they wore certain clothes that I don't like, now I'm judging them and now I don't trust them to take care of my child because of their appearance. This isn't something that you would like to have as part of the way that you interact in the world. So a person should trust all beings without judgment, but then there's certain discernment that you need to make based on the wisdom that you cultivate from this path. And I've just given you some examples of situations where you might do that, where there's trust versus discernment. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, my question is not so much about a life partner, but in your chapter on, um, on true love, you talk about love for parents and caregivers. And uh, I'll try to make this, summarize it, but my parents are elderly, their, their health is declining. And I have one other sibling and um, both, you know, there were both for both of us, we often felt that our emotional needs were not met. And I've reconciled with my parents about that many, many years ago. My sibling has not. And now my parents are declining and we have to start taking care of them. And uh, so I'm having two issues. One is that they're losing their independence. So they're becoming very resistant and I'm trying to find ways to talk about it. Uh, without causing harm to them. And I know that sometimes my mother gets angry with me, and even though I'm very nice about it. And the other one is that my sibling has, because she is not reconciled with, with, my, with my parents, she's less, she's very reluctant to be helpful. I mean, she's not, she's doing something, but she's, it's very, so I feel like I'm taking on a lot of 
a lot of stuff and it's going to get worse as they decline, you know, that's impermanence. And I was wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about how I could communicate most efficiently using these principles that you shared with both my parents and with my sibling. Okay, so in regards to your sibling, you need to just accept whatever decisions they make rather than, not that you're doing this, but rather than try to convince them to take care of your parents or rather than impress upon that they need to help you and so forth and so on, just whatever decisions they make, if they choose to participate in the care, then they choose to participate in the care. If they choose not to, then you just accept that. And then whatever decisions you make about the amount of care that you can provide, then you make wise decisions about the amount of care you can provide, while at the same time respecting the decisions of your parents, that if they're not interested in your care and that's not what they're interested in, or if uh, you know they're uh, pushing it away, then you need to be comfortable with that as well. My grandmother is like this. She's 99 years old and she's lived in the same house pretty much her entire life when her and my grandfather married they bought this house and she's lived in that house ever since then. And then, you know, he died about 25 years ago, 27 years ago. And, you know, she just won't move out of the house. She's determined to live in that house and that's where she'll live. And she doesn't have anybody coming to help her and take care of her. But I found out recently that she's got some help from the government where I think eight times a month she's able to call and there's a caregiver who comes and takes her to her doctor's appointments and takes her to get food and things like this, but she won't receive any help from the family and she's not interested in that. So we've just respected what decision she's made and she's found her way of how to do that. So sometimes when there's attachment from the child to the parent, then you might feel like you need to go in there and do certain things because you see that maybe mom and dad aren't being careful for them themselves and they're not caring for themselves as much as you would like them to take care of themselves. But whatever they're experiencing is the choices that they're making. So if they're choosing whatever it is they're choosing, that's what they're choosing. If you feel like there's something that's not being done as well as it could be, that is your own craving, wanting things to be a certain way. You can offer, you can suggest, you can provide advice, you can offer assistance to your parents, but if they say no, then you need to accept that decision. Let me ask another question a little bit more specific. Um, let's say one of my parents is really declining in her ability to drive and she insists on continuing to drive. Not only might she harm herself, but if she was to get into an accident, she could harm other people as well. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes it a little bit more difficult. I was wondering how I would approach something like that. Do I just let her continue to drive or, you know, how, how would that work? It's the same thing. She has to make her own choices because there where you say, do I let her continue to drive? That sounds like it's your decision when it's not your decision because she's an adult. My grandmother was the same way. She actually just stopped driving about two years ago because she did get into an accident. Uh, it was a low speed accident, but it was an accident nonetheless. And the government eventually took her driver's license from her at 97 years old, but she was able to keep it all the way up until then. Uh, so it's not our decision of whether grandma drives or not. It's not your decision of whether mom drives or not. If mom chooses to drive and she injures somebody else, that's the results of her decisions. It's not the results of your decisions. So you're not letting her drive. What you're doing is you're just respecting her decisions that she's choosing to drive. So then you need to respect that decision because 
if we can bring this down into talking about craving, desire, attachment for a moment, let's say your mom has this craving to drive and she just wants to drive really badly. And let's just say there is a way for you to force her maybe force the government to take her driver's license. But now she's stuck with this craving that she wants to drive. Now she's got this craving. Her mind's going to be discontent. She's going to die. She's going to be reborn. She's got all these cravings. So you're actually thinking that you're solving a problem by stopping her to drive, when in reality you actually might be causing a problem because one of the ways to eliminate craving, desire, attachment is to fulfill it. So my grandmother has this strong desire for independence and that's why she drove for so long as she did and once she got her driver's license taken away i didn't talk to her for about a year after that and she told me that that was one of the hardest things for her to get accustomed to not driving and that's reason why it was so hard is because she has so much craving to drive and be independent but there's nothing that we can do to help her extinguish that in some situations they just have to be able to do it and fulfill it so one of the ways to practice true love is to accept everybody's decision around you is not to try to take whatever you think is best for this person and impress upon them to do that because you don't always know what the cravings are in that person's mind. They're trying to figure out a way themselves, even without knowing this path and knowing about craving, desire, attachment. An individual's mind is gradually working towards the elimination of craving themselves, oftentimes through fulfilling their cravings. So since you don't know what the cravings are in somebody's mind, you need to accept whatever decisions the person makes. You can suggest not to drive. You can provide advice that, hey, maybe it's not a good idea. You can have that conversation with them. But if at the end of that conversation they say, nope, I'm still going to drive. I need to drive. Okay. Part of true love is just accepting their decisions that they make. Thank you, Teacher Mm -hmm. Let me just check one more time. And it appears that we have no more questions at this time. Okay. Thank you, Rick. And also, I just want to clarify if uh, we are talking about the same thing when we uh, talk about loving kindness and about love. Is it the same thing here or there is some differences? It's the same thing. Loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And that's the same thing that unconditional love is, is loving beings as they are and having an interest in seeing them be well. Thank you very much. There doesn't appear to be any other question at this time. Okay, so let's talk about life partners. This next content that I'm going to share with you is specifically about developing relationships with a life partner. And as I mentioned at the beginning, some people aren't going to be interested in having a life partner, and that's completely fine. Not everybody's going to have a life partner. That would be permanence if every single person had a life partner. So whether you choose to have a life partner or not is your personal choice. But if you do choose to have a life partner, these next things that I'm going to share with you is going to help you to be able to determine how to go forward in this relationship and making sure that you're making a wise choice because who you choose to have as your life partner, this is a significant role in your life and you're gonna spend a lot of time with this person. So you would like to make sure that you guys develop and cultivate a relationship that's very healthy and very wholesome. 
the first thing to understand about a life partner is that the perfect partner does not exist. Sometimes what we do is we have this big laundry list of all the things that we want in a partner and we can only be satisfied if we get all those things. Well, that person only exists in your own mind. That perfect person that meets all those conditions doesn't actually exist. And even if you meet that person that you feel matches to all those conditions, well, either your conditions are going to grow during the relationship or they're going to change because of impermanence. So therefore, you're going to be left right back at the beginning where you're struggling because somebody doesn't meet your conditions. This is not love. This is craving, desire, attachment. There might be love in there, but having those conditions of what you expect out of this person is just going to sabotage your relationships. Be sure that as you are dating or you're getting to know somebody that you look to develop important skills, develop problem solving skills. This is going to be really helpful in a relationship with a life partner because it's not going to be that you meet this life partner and then you live happily ever after. That's not the way any of this works. Instead, you guys are going to face certain challenges in life. So you're going to need to have these problem solving skills where you guys are able to communicate and discuss things that are happening in life through open discussions and having the ability to disagree while remaining polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. Be sure that you can have discussions about things that you're facing that you guys can discuss both sides of it. Maybe you guys disagree and that's okay. Maybe it's a discussion that's going to take you three, four, five days or three, four, five weeks before you come to a conclusion. When there's craving in the mind and you want things to be your way, you might enter into a conversation and think that the goal is to convince this person to do things your way. And the other person might have that same mentality too. And you guys are now struggling to try to argue and fight and convince each other to do things your way. And you can only be satisfied if you walk away with that person agreeing with you or them being satisfied that you agree with them. And if that's the way that you approach conversations where you can only be satisfied if you've convinced the other person to agree with you, then there's going to be argument. There's going to be hostility. There's going to be problems in the relationship because as you guys disagree, you guys are both fighting with each other to try to convince the other person. And then you walk away upset and angry. Whereas if you understand what your goal in this relationship is, is to come to a unified decision that you guys can both agree with to a certain level, and then you can move forward with that. So that means when you come together, there's a certain topic that you need to discuss. And now you use those problem solving skills to figure out a way that you can make a unified decision. And you guys can both walk away feeling like, hey, we made the best decision here. And then if you approach your conversations that way, realizing that it's going to be a discussion, realizing that there's going to be disagreement and you kind of find your way in the conversation of how to come to a unified decision, then you can actually meet with lots of success. Whereas if you enter the conversation trying to advocate for your position and trying to convince this person to do things your way, now that's where the aggression and hostility comes up and you've sabotage the conversation before you ever entered it because your mind might be thinking the only way that you can be satisfied here is if I can convince them to agree with me. Well, now that's where the struggle and the pool happens. So realize that you might enter into conversations and whatever you thought was going to be the outcome, that actually you're flexible to move and adjust 
and come to some resolution that you can both be comfortable with and you can have this unified decision that you both walk forward with. Understand that official marriage isn't necessarily required. There can be an official marriage and you might choose to do that in some cultures and in some countries, there's a lot of benefits to having an official marriage and going down to the government and informing them that you're legally married through whatever process that they have. But this isn't actually required in order to have a healthy relationship. In some situations, it might be better to not have an official document and inform the government that you're married. Because this whole institution of marriage and being married is actually somewhat of a new thing. You know, the way that they function here in Thailand is about 80% of the couples who reside together are actually not legally married. It's only about 20% of the couples that are actually legally married. And there's various reasons for that. But you can actually live a very healthy and wonderful life without necessarily being married and just choosing to live with each other. Now, there's some people who are going to be interested in getting married, and that's what they would like to do. You can actually have a wedding ceremony without necessarily informing the government that you're actually married. And as I mentioned, there's some situations where you might need to inform the government and there are certain benefits associated with that. So I'm not suggesting that everybody not get married legally and I'm not suggesting that everybody does get married legally. What I'm suggesting is that you look at this from a rational point of view that having an official document where you've informed the government that you're now married isn't necessarily going to breed success in your relationship. In my situation where I was legally married, I felt that there was like this burden on my shoulders to perform a certain way and that I had to do things a certain way. It was like a ball in a chain. And also in that situation, I noticed that I became somewhat complacent in the relationship because the mind kind of knows like, okay, we're legally married. This person isn't going to be able to leave easily. I can kind of backslide here and not really do too much because I kind of got them, right? We're married. Where once you get to the point where you realize that you don't necessarily need to be legally married and you can be together just because you enjoy being with each other. This actually promotes sometimes more health in the relationship because either person can pack up and leave at any moment. And you'll find that you'll probably be more polite, kind, friendly, and respectful in the relationship knowing that this person can pack up and walk out the door at any moment. That's the way that we tend to be when we're dating. When we're dating, things tend to go a lot better. Oftentimes when people get married, they get complacent and then the relationship kind of erodes from there. But also if somebody grows up with the idea that their Prince Charming or their Princess Charming is gonna whoosh them off of their feet, put a ring around their finger, there's gonna be this immaculate ceremony and that's what needs to be done to please mom and dad or to please your own mind, then you might work yourself into a situation where if somebody hasn't proposed marriage yet, that you feel there's something wrong in this relationship. Where otherwise you could potentially be living together very peacefully and very joyfully as a couple who chooses to live together, either man-man or woman-woman or a man and a woman living together. And you might be able to actually create a much more peaceful life 
not having an official marriage where you go to actually inform the government that you're married because this can sometimes cause problems in a relationship if there's this craving to get married or once somebody does get married, if there's this complacency that sets in. So you need to look at this rationally and decide, you know, what's best for you? Is it better to just live as a couple and be committed to each other and have this relationship where you're enjoying being with each other and this is a committed and loyal relationship? People generally know that you're husband and wife, but you're just choosing to live together. They don't necessarily need to know that you're not legally married. Or does it make sense that you do get legally married based on the culture and based on the country that you live in? At one time, my wife, who I live with now, we were legally married. In 2015, we chose to no longer be legally married anymore. And our relationship has actually gotten better and better and better ever since then. So you can actually live with somebody and choose to be in a relationship with somebody long term without necessarily having a legal document. Those first seven or eight years of our relationship was a lot more of a struggle than the last seven or eight years. The last seven or eight years, you know, things have been quite peaceful, particularly in the last five years, as we've practiced these teachings more and more deeply, both of us, there's no arguing, there's no hostility, there's no bitterness. Even when we have a disagreement, we just talk about it and we discuss it. There's no hostility or aggression in our relationship whatsoever. It's nothing but smiles. Where in the past, there was anger, there was bitterness, there was sadness, there was frustration, there was guilt, there was shame, there was fear. That wasn't being caused by the official marriage. It was being caused by our craving, desire, attachment. But by us letting that go and choosing to not have that, we then realized that we were choosing to be together because we just enjoyed being together. And that was what really enhanced our relationship. So each couple is going to need to look at this and decide, is legal marriage best for you? And that's what you would like to do? Or is it better to not have a legal marriage? Because you can still live a very wonderful life without necessarily being legally married. And then understand that getting married is not getting married and then living happily ever after. This actually isn't true. This is a fairy tale, right? This is what we read in children's books, that two people meet, they get married, and then they live happily ever after. This isn't the way that it actually works. Instead, what it is, is it's meet each other, learn about each other, work on developing skills and abilities to solve challenges with each other, learn to communicate, learn to have discussions and talk about the things that you guys need to talk about, learn to be friends with each other, learn to not want things from each other, learn to be interested in seeing your partner be well and succeed in life, support, encourage, and motivate each other to accomplish whatever it is that you might be interested to accomplish or that your partner might be interested in accomplishing without any expectations or trying to control the conduct of the other person in the relationship. That's what it really is. It's not meet and then live happily ever after or get married and live happily ever after. There's real work in a relationship. And these are some of the things that you're going to need to do in order to develop a healthy relationship with a partner. As you guys are starting to get together and you're dating and things like this, learn to spend time doing different activities. 
where when you guys come together and you're dating, oftentimes you guys are both going out to the movies together, or you're both going out to dinner together, or you're both going to some event together, or you're both coming to a certain house and spending time together at a certain house. Well, typically when we're dating, we're always together. And then when we're apart, we're apart. And you know, we're living separate lives to a certain degree. And we think that that time together is kind of realistic and that's what we're going to be experiencing. But what can be really helpful for you to do is that when you're coming together for a date, maybe part of that date, you're doing things together, but maybe part of that time you're doing things separately as well. Because if you guys end up being long-term partners together and you reside in the same dwelling together, there's going to be times where your partner's in one room doing one thing and you're in the other room doing something else. And this can actually be bothersome. If you're used to dating and you're always used to being together, then when you actually live together, it might feel like you have to always be with each other. Where if in the dating process, you get used to spending time together, but then also maybe your partner's in one room reading a book and you're in another room watching TV, or you're in one room doing something and they're in another room doing something else. And this can be part of the date where you're learning to reside in the same dwelling, but actually do separate things. And this can help to ensure that there's not attachment in the relationship. Understand that change is going to occur in your relationships, that the appearance of your partner is going to change, the relationship itself is going to change. If you guys end up having children in whatever type of relationship that you have, you might go from boyfriend, girlfriend to husband, wife, husband, husband, wife, wife to mommy, daddy or mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy. Your relationship's going to evolve. Eventually you might be grandparents and other roles like this. Whereas if you're craving and holding on to being boyfriend, girlfriend, you might crave date night or you might crave time alone. And now when people start spending time around you, you might feel like you're not getting enough time with your partner and you just crave and crave and crave for that private time. So learn to enjoy time together. Learn to enjoy time apart. Learn to enjoy time with friends or family or together with you. But if your mind is always craving something that it doesn't have, like I want more time together or I want more time with friends, we need to go out with friends or we need to do this or we need to do that. This is the mind just craving and thinking that the next thing is going to somehow solve the challenges that you're experiencing in your relationship, where what the real challenge is, is the mind's craving something that it doesn't have. It's like the grass is always greener on the other side. So understand that things are going to change in your relationships and your role shouldn't be to try to force this relationship to stay the same, but instead to grow with the relationship and allow this space to occur in creating environments where you guys can be comfortable doing different things and learning skills as a couple to discuss things and solve challenges that you're experiencing. So this is everything that I had to share with you guys today related to this topic of developing and maintaining relationships and choosing wholesome friends and a life partner. So I'll just turn things over to all of you guys for any questions that you guys might have. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Yes, teacher David. Um, I was wondering about uh, the difference between uh, romantic relationship, friendships, uh, parents, children, it seems 
in my personal experience, I had very good relationships with everybody else but life partners. And uh, like often I've wondered about that. And uh, it seems to me that sexuality causes a lot of attachment, at least in my case. And that would produce a lot of complications and a lot of uh, issues that obviously other relationships didn't have to deal with. So I was just wondering if you have uh, uh, some guidance there, like uh, if, uh, if, if you are familiar with uh, what, what causes uh, uh, like that, maybe, maybe I would become more sensitive uh, in those cases or just wondered what you have to say about that. Thank you. Sure. So all love and all relationships is exactly the same. If you understand what true love is, that it's this genuine interest in seeing this being be well and loving people as they are, then love is the same, whether it's with a child, with a sibling, with a parent, with a life partner, the way that you love somebody is that you have a genuine interest in seeing them be well. Now, when we start talking about what you're describing as romantic love, this is a certain individual who our role is unique in that situation. So our role with our child versus our role with our neighbor, our role with our parents, our role with a life partner is going to be different. If you have a life partner where you are being intimate, you might call that romantic love, but it's essentially a individual who you're choosing to be intimate with. And when there's this intimacy, there's a certain expression of feelings through actions that occur. And there's a certain pleasantness that's happening as part of that sexual contact. That's why people enjoy sexual contact so much is that there's eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact in the mind. All of these six sense bases are involved in pleasing this other individual through our sexual contact and then receiving pleasure from this other being through our sexual contact. So there becomes this expectation, there becomes this wanting, this craving, now we want this person to please the physical body and thus please the mind to get these pleasant feelings. And the other person perhaps wants that as well. And then if things happen the way that we want, then we feel stimulated. We feel that we have these pleasant feelings, the happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria springs up in the mind. But then as this relationship goes on, those same things that are going on in the relationship with sexual contact aren't necessarily as pleasing anymore. And it becomes diminishing in terms of those feelings, of the pleasant feelings. And this is where somebody might say, I don't love you anymore. But really what's happened is their mind has gotten accustomed to the sexual contact and now it's not as thrilling for them anymore. It's not as euphoric for them anymore as it was when we first met. So now if we start associating our sexual contact to this is our love, this is an expression of our love. Well, if at the end of that intimate contact, you feel satisfied with the pleasant feelings that you received, you might feel that you received love. But if these intimate contact isn't arising the pleasant feelings of thrill and euphoria that it once did, if you're attributing the sexual contact as that is what love is, now when the sexual contact isn't as pleasing anymore, now you might feel that the love is gone. There's a whole lot of importance put into life about sexual contact. And this is like 
the meaning of a relationship. And this is the determining factor of whether we're in love or not, because we're making love, right? That's what we call intimate contact is we're making love. Well, no, we're having intimate contact and we're pleasing each other's senses through contact, through these six sense bases. That's what we're doing. We're arising pleasant feelings in the mind of the other person through these six sense bases and through the contact. The love is that genuine interest in seeing this person be well. And if we have a real interest in seeing this person be well, then maybe when we're having sexual contact, then maybe we do extra things to try to arise these pleasant feelings. But that pleasant feeling that's occurring in the intimate contact is not the love. That's where the unenlightened mind is confused. It thinks that those pleasant feelings during intimate contact is the love, but that's actually not the love. So when we understand that intimate contact is to produce these pleasant feelings in the mind, then we can understand that that's not the love. And you might choose to have sexual contact, and that's a personal choice, but there's always going to be some degree of discontentedness when there's sexual contact in a relationship. There's going to be times where you or your partner want sexual contact and you can't get it. And now if the person's practicing wrong view, they're going to associate their painful feelings of sadness or anger, frustration or others to the other person. And they might think you don't love me anymore because you won't make love with me. Or the other side of that is not only can you have painful feelings because you're not getting sexual contact and now you associate that with not having love, but you can have sexual contact not have it be as pleasing as the mind wanted it to be. And now the mind feels like the love is gone. So there's all these challenges whenever there's this craving, desire, attachment, this wanting, this expectation around intimate contact and sexual contact that now the mind can easily be left with feelings of anger or frustration or irritation or annoyance because the mind's not getting what it wants out of this sexual contact. And this is why an enlightened being is ultimately not going to be having sexual contact. They will have eliminated the craving for that. But if somebody chooses to practice these teachings and get all the way up to the first and second stage of enlightenment, you can still have sexual contact there. You're going to still be having discontentedness in that first and second stage of enlightenment. But perhaps you need to have enough sexual contact and experience that enough that you finally get to the point at whatever point in your life where you're like, you know what, we've done that enough. You know, we've experienced that enough. We can kind of gradually let that go because that's going to naturally happen by itself anyway. There's very few people who are 80 years old, 90 years old, still having sex. There are very, very few people that are doing that. So this feeling for sexual craving actually gradually diminishes as we age anyway. One of the ways that it gets eliminated is that we actually fulfill it, that we do it enough times that we're like, yeah, been there, done that. And what you'll notice is as you eventually get to that point in your relationship, if you're with a life partner that you truly enjoy being with, that when the sex is no longer there, you can actually be even more peaceful and more joyful in the relationship, that there's no longer this wanting of sexual contact from each other. So therefore, there's no longer this attributing of painful feelings to the other partner when there's not sex 
or when the sex isn't as fulfilling as the mind wanted it to be. When you just take that whole craving off the board, now you don't want anything from your partner. The only thing you're interested in is seeing that person be well. So when there's sex in the relationship, there's going to be discontentedness. It's just a matter of time. But if both people are practicing right view, when they're experiencing those painful feelings, at least they don't attribute it to the other person, that they realize it's their own craving for sexual contact. And then when or if you ever choose to eliminate the craving for sexual contact is up to you if you choose to do that or when you choose to do it. Thank you, teacher David. That helps a lot. And uh, we just have a question that is not really related to today's topic, if, if you have time for that. Sure, we can talk about anything you guys would like. Yeah, but Sam is asking, uh, is there any harm in buying someone a chicken if they are not vegetarian? So if you're purchasing meat for somebody, there's no harm that's coming to you, no immediate harm because you're not ingesting the meat. There's still generalized harm in terms of the environment and things like that. But oftentimes there can be more harm in not purchasing it than if you actually did purchase it. So in the situation like with me and my wife, she still eats a little bit of meat and she's been gradually declining on that. But there was a period of time where I would like go out to the market and I would say, hey, I'm going to get some food. Would you like something? And she would ask me to buy this certain dish that had meat in it. Well, in that situation, if I'm not practicing generosity and I'm not choosing to help her to get food, then I'm not really participating in the relationship and helping her to accomplish the things that she needs to accomplish. So by me going to the market and buying whatever I buy for myself and then ordering the food for her, I'm just ordering it for her. She would have done it herself anyway, but I'm just facilitating it and helping her to do it. So I'm not making the choice to purchase the meat. She's making the choice to purchase the meat and she's making the choice to ingest it. So she's going to experience any kind of unwholesome results because of that. For me, I'm experiencing the wholesome results of practicing generosity and practicing loving kindness and practicing compassion. That's what I'm practicing in that situation. So in that situation, if she chooses to eat meat, then that's her choice. And then slowly but surely, you know, she's eating less and less meat these days. So that's her choice too. But if I was to try to impress upon her and try to force or control or convince her to give up meat, then that would be my own craving. So she has to be able to be free to make her own choices and her own decisions. And you realize that you're practicing generosity, loving kindness and compassion. And then that's going to produce wholesome results for you. Thank you, teacher. I guess uh, Basan wants to clarify his questions, so let's go to him. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Tonka. Well, teacher, I, um, I need, uh, I'm interested to add something. I'm not sure if this is the case in uh, other countries or it's only in Egypt. Uh, for one to buy a chicken, it's not going and buying a killed chicken. I mean, you need to go to the shop and ask the person who is selling chicken choosing a specific chicken and asking him to kill this chicken. So is this mm. different from buying a meat from a killed animal maybe? 
Yeah, in that situation, I would not do that. If somebody asked me to go do that, I wouldn't choose to do that because there's a choice there. You're putting the intention, you're picking out the bird, and then they're literally going and killing it for you. In that situation, there would need to be a certain amount of ill will in the mind to pick out the bird and say, that one, kill that one. So I wouldn't choose to do that in that situation. Okay, thanks, Mm-hmm. Also, Rick is saying, my partner would eat vegan, but due to a health condition, it would make her very ill. How does that affect her karma? Yeah, so we're in this period of time where the vast majority of the world doesn't understand the harms that are being caused by our choices in the past to eat animal products and use animal products and more and more of the world is becoming aware of this and starting to transfer over and transition over to a plant-based food supply and plant-based products so now that we're in this generation of making these shifts there's going to be people like your girlfriend who aren't able to switch over to a plant-based food supply no matter what type of supplements they take no matter what type of dietary practices they have it would be unhealthy for them. So it's gonna take many generations of us humans and humanity practicing plant-based food and eating this where more and more human beings are going to be able to then be able to be sustained on a plant-based food. So I have a student whose mom was a vegan while they were inside the womb. And this student, she's I think in her late 40s, early 50s, and she's never had to take any supplements. She's never had to do any of that stuff. And she's been vegan her whole life. And she was vegan when she was in the womb. So her body has gotten acclimated to not taking any even B12. A lot of us need to take B12 because we're transitioning away from meats and we need some type of B12 and most plants don't have that. But there's going to be people like your girlfriend who are even more dependent on some type of animal product. And what you would like to do, if I was her and I was advising her, is I would encourage her to try to purge as much animal products out of her life as possible. And then if there's still some things, you know, 10%, 20% that she needs to still ingest animal products, then just realize that that's where she is and that she wouldn't be showing herself loving kindness and compassion if she allowed herself to get deathly ill and cause death to this being who she is now by choosing not to do this and realize that she's in this time and place where her body is not acclimated to plant-based food and there's going to be multiple generations that need to ultimately transition over to plant-based foods before all of humanity would be able to eat plant-based foods and no longer be reliant on animals whatsoever. So there's going to be a certain percentage of the population that's going to still need a bit of animal products in order to sustain their life. And that would be showing themselves loving kindness and compassion. And that's also part of not craving permanence. Whereas if we had this idea of everybody in the world has to be plant-based right now at the snap of a finger. This would be craving permanence and it's just not possible. So by showing loving kindness and compassion for her as her own being and choosing, yes, I'm going to minimize the amount of animal products that I eat because the more animal products that you digest, you're not just putting the animals into your body, but you're putting in drugs and toxins and 
hormones and antibiotics and things like this. So you would like to minimize that. That's where the real problem is coming in is yes, animals are being killed. Yes, the environment is being affected. But where you're being affected as an individual, if you eat animal products, is you're ingesting drugs, toxins, hormones, antibiotics, and this is going to cause illness in your own body. So you would like to minimize your input and intake of animal products to minimize the digestion of those harmful substances that are coming along with the animal products. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. It seems to be that it's all the questions that we have for today. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining. Our next class that's coming up next week on Sunday, we're going to be continuing in this same retreat series of harmony and relationships but now the topic of next week's class is going to be the path to enlightenment practicing the path in the workplace because oftentimes people learn this path to enlightenment about right intention right speech right action and things like this and we think okay well if i go around and i use all these teachings and everyone else isn't in my workplace how am i supposed to conduct myself or if i'm working on not having craving, desire, attachment, but yet my boss is craving for me to do things a certain way, how do I manage this? So I'm going to help you with teachings about how to practice this path to enlightenment in your workplace and developing your life practice so that you're not thinking that you can't practice these teachings in the workplace, but instead you know how to do that. So that'll be next Sunday's class. And then this Wednesday, we're gonna be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. And then on Saturday, we're doing our Pali Canon in English study group where we're studying the words of the Buddha in volumes two through volumes 13. We're in volume 13 now, and we're exploring chapters 21 through chapters 30. That's what we're going to be exploring this Saturday. And that program of the Pali Canon in English study group is restarting on January 28th. It's starting from the very beginning with volume two. And that's a year and a half program and people can actually start that program at any time you don't have to start at the beginning but some people like to kind of start at the beginning so just to let you know that it's restarting on january 28th and the group learning program is going to be restarting on january 8th so that's a very short time away from now where both of these programs are going to actually be restarting at the beginning of the year so whether you've been studying regularly or you're just joining you can actually retake these programs more than one time or if you're moving from the group learning program into the Pali Canon and English study group, you can do that. Or if you're just starting to learn about these classes and what we're starting to teach, you can actually join these programs and start learning each Sunday, Wednesday, and or Saturday. You can join these programs and these classes as you like. And all the classes are recorded. So anytime that you miss a class, you can watch that on Facebook, YouTube, or listen to it on our podcast. So thank you all for attending. Thank you for your questions. Thank you to the moderators for moderating. I appreciate all the dedication and diligence to learning and practicing these teachings. We'll see you in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment.
Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.